0: excited today to have Robert Doerr with us for our latest edition of Free Exchange, our new Badger Institute podcast. Robert, as most of you who are listening probably know, is the president of the American Enterprise Institute, also the Mortgage Scholar, joined AEI in 2014 and is a basically a poverty scholar, but someone who has a lot of real-world experience as well served for more than 20 years in leadership positions in social service programs in New York State and also New York City under both Governor Pataki and then Mayor Michael Bloomberg. Uh, I'm particularly proud to have Robert with us today. He is coming to be the guest speaker at our annual dinner for the Badger Institute in Milwaukee on October 19th. Really looking forward to that. And Finally, and perhaps most importantly, for the Badgers who are listening here, Robert is also the godson of Packers legend Johnny Blood McNally. So I love, I love that connection. Many of you also probably know a little bit about Robert's dad, whom I hope to talk about maybe a little bit later in our podcast. Um, obviously, famous instrumental civil rights leader. Uh, also uh, native Wisconsinite. So would love to be able to talk to you a little bit about your family as well, Robert, but thank you for making time for us.
1: Happy to be here. I'm looking forward to coming to Milwaukee later in October and talking about issues I've worked on all my life and also my family connection to the state of Wisconsin and to New Richmond, which is way up in the northwest corner. And Johnny Blood was my godfather, and I've always been very proud of that. And Dad also uh, was a proud Wisconsinite and um, I'm happy to talk about him or anything that you want to talk about. I'm looking forward to the discussion today and also to the visit in October.
0: Well, today we're going to talk about poverty alleviation, the growth of the entitlement state, and finally, the dignity of work. All things that you've spent your career on. I wonder if I could just ask a big picture question. Where are we in America right now in terms of poverty levels and how does that compare to decades and years past?
1: Well, if you look carefully at the data, and poverty is measured in a variety of ways, but pretty much any way you measure it, not counting the effects of COVID, but that's sort of a special circumstance, we've made great progress in reducing the material deprivation, the the really struggling, the number of families that were really struggling with the resources they need to sort of be above a minimum. Now, Being above that minimum is good, it's better than being below it, and and making progress on alleviating poverty is good, but there are a lot of challenges for those families still beyond that to move up safely in the middle class. But if you're talking just about poverty as we've defined it over the many years, um, a combination of an emphasis on employment as the path out of poverty um, and government supports that make work pay um, have really, if you, Fairly look at it and combine all the benefits that come into households plus earnings and do an accurate uh, measurement of it, you'll find that we're much lower poverty rates than we've ever had in the past. In fact, at the end of the Trump administration, the last year before COVID, we reached all time lows no matter how you measure it. So I I would say that we've gotten good at reducing the material hardship of Americans. I happen to think one of the reasons we were good at it is because we emphasized. At, at least in some ways, work. And what I'm afraid is that that's changing, that in the response to COVID and in the Democrats uh, in Washington's desire to go back to an entitlement state, on, with, especially with regard to cash assistance, that we're gonna go backwards. And they've they've kind of given up on work as the path out of poverty. And now they wanna just get people out of poverty by sending them checks from Washington. And I think that's very problematic. I think we tried that, in the 70s and 80s and early 90s when welfare policy really went off track and led to a big reform in the 1990s. And I don't want to go back there. I grew up in Brooklyn, New York. I My family's from Wisconsin, but I'm from New York. And I saw New York City in the 80s and early 90s when welfare rights and an expectation led to more than a million New York City residents being on cash welfare. When we were done, when we brought work into the mix, mix and Combined work with assistance under Governor Pataki and Mayor Bloomberg, that number was down to less than 360,000. So uh, just one last thing about the the, the sort of state of government policy. We provide an awful lot of assistance to people, Uh, food stamp benefits, public health insurance, refundable tax credits, um, and childcare assistance. And when we do that, I think we're best doing it when we're doing it in a way that rewards and encourages employment, because it's the combination of earnings from employment and government assistance that leads to families being stronger, not just stronger in income, but stronger in the way of life in their, in their having the dignity of earning their own success. And so that I think has worked. And, and you know, I know I've got to, I'm, now, I'm talking too long, Mike, I know, but I would just say one thing, it's very popular uh, on both the right and the left, to bemoan how awful things are. But actually the facts are that if you ask yourself, did we wanna reduce the material hardship of Americans, and we did in in the 70s and 60s, we started out by just giving assistance, then we moved to a more work-based focus, and that has led to, I think, real progress.
0: You didn't talk too long. That was a fantastic overview. Let me ask you, What's different today and what's being proposed today, That's different than last year or or five years ago or 10 years ago. So there at the national level are proposals out there right now. And I'm just going to be very simplistic here. Under the Biden plan, people earning really hundreds of thousands of dollars, Robert, per year would qualify for expanded child tax credits of, of thousands of dollars per year. Um, in some instances, in some states, more than that. I've, I've seen it written actually in the Wall Street Journal today, yeah. tens of thousands of dollars in some states. So these are people earning hundreds of thousands of dollars a year um, could receive tens of thousands of dollars in paid family leave. And, and also could receive uh, Obamacare subsidies. These are, these are people who traditionally we've thought as pretty darn well off, at least upper middle class. Some would say wealthy. So is this different just in terms of the, the increase in what the federal government wants to provide to people unattached to work? Is this different than what we've traditionally done?
1: Well, it's different than what we've done since welfare reform in the nineteen nineties. It, it is it is significantly different, and the the Democrat leadership in in Washington has decided that they can use the emergency of the COVID crisis to sort of implement and push in a really big transformative change in the way we provide assistance in the United States. Now, there are two problems with it. One is the one you're describing. They are big believers in providing. Getting as many people as possible, even people with high incomes, attached to some form of government benefit. They think that you know if you get more people signed up and more people dependent on, on government benefits, then the political strength of those government benefits will be stronger and they'll be impossible to undo, regardless of whether we can afford it or whether those people really need that assistance. So you're right, there are a lot of benefits in what the Biden people are proposing that go quite high up the income scale, and isn't really about reducing poverty, it's about getting more people um, on, on the government dole in some respects, which is troubling to me. Now, I'll come back to that in a minute. The other problem, which you didn't mention, is that for a long time, while there are very many forms of assistance, food stamp benefits, public health insurance, other forms of assistance, housing assistance, that don't necessarily say We're gonna give you this assistance, but you need to do something. You need to go to work or go to training. But for a long time, for one form of assistance, cash assistance, any money you would get in cash from the government um, would come through a program that had a work expectation. And what that meant was you had to go in and see a state or local worker, and you had to talk to them about what, what was causing you to be in this circumstance, and how could you get out of that circumstance through employment. Did you need training? Did you need help finding a job? And if you didn't make some effort, your cash benefits were subject to being reduced or or terminated. I did that in New York, and that's what we put in place in very liberal New York. And it was very accepted because when people get the message that work is part of the mix and that there has to be a reciprocal responsibility from the receiver of assistance as well as the giver of assistance to do something to help themselves. They take that message and they go to work, but the Democrats never really liked that. For a long time, they never really liked a work requirement in any assistance.
0: Even though they it was po- Bill, even though it was Bill Clinton, Robert, who was really instrumental in that. I mean, I think you're talking about the transition. for...
2: Correct me yes, if I'm wrong. that's a very good from point. A, you absolutely, I, you
1: know, I've been yeah. around a long time. So I, I was in welfare policy when President Clinton was president. But I, I guess I would say the more recent Democrats, the, the okay. Democrats, have, you know, Bill Clinton is not is not popular in his party. He's, he's not, they don't recognize him. They don't really support him. They've turned against him. And one of the reasons they've turned against him is they didn't like his uh, uh, signing of that welfare reform bill. Yeah. That is anathema to Democrats today. Completely. And just to make sure, yeah, Even just to make Joe Biden signed it. Right. So it right. Shows you the change in the Democrats, they have left right. that they are no longer that party
0: just to make sure that we understand what you're talking about historically you're talking about that transition from the old aid to families with dependent children AFDC to TANF which is which is a cash payment program now right which was supposed to have some connection to work right
1: and did have connection work and okay. does have connection work the change that so that was one change and i think that led to positive improvements in in states like Wisconsin New York where i was from but the next change is this one that Biden and his and his team is putting trying to put through now and that is We don't need the states, we don't need local social services workers, and we certainly don't need a work requirement. All we need is the IRS, which was intended to collect revenue, not to be a welfare agency, to issue checks on a monthly basis without anyone filing a tax return or indicating what their relationship is to every family with children in it, including families who have no income. And those families are the ones I'm worried about because when you start receiving $600 $600 a month from the IRS, which they are getting now. It's $560 a month from SNAP. Your housing is provided by some form of other assistance. You're getting something from somewhere else. All of a sudden, you don't need to work, and you won't work. And that, I think, will be ultimately damaging to those families.
0: Yeah, that's how so- the... To- that's at the heart of our concern that's disconnect between work and the entitlement state. And I want to get to that, but I also just want you to maybe if you could elaborate on what you mentioned, which is that there's a real loss of accountability at the state level. I mean, we believe in federalism here, you know, we're, we're the badger institute, right? we we believe in state policy and state control because I'm, I'm, I mean, we love AEI, but we're in the state, right?
1: Yeah, and I agree. So and, I, this, and I love and states been... too. I come from a state where yeah. I believed in local decision-making and the, and that you really could help people with the closest you are to the people. But this IRS welfare program, which the Democrats have put in place and which they want to extend and make permanent is, a, is just ignores the states entirely. It just basically says, let's write a check from Washington and wash our hands for and We get to say, this is the saddest part of all, is they get to say in Washington, well, we solved that problem. But they never saw a person. They never worked with the person. They never really engaged with the person in a human way. They just wrote him a check from Washington, or passed legislation that sent money from Washington. That's not helping people. That's but not this human. Is,
0: this is dangerous, isn't it, though, Robert, in, in a way? Because let me just use Wisconsin as an example. You know, one of your colleagues at AEI and one of your former colleagues in, in New York City, Angela Rashidi, is a visiting fellow here at the Badger Institute. And so she is fabulous and she she quantifies among other things the growth in some of the federally supported programs right that are that are essential safety nets if used properly and so she has quantified the growth pre-pandemic up until now and i do want to come back to the pandemic being used as 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 i guess an excuse to try to grow some of these programs for reasons that aren't due to health and safety but can i just throw a couple stats at you sure because these are these are state things i mean you know continuing unemployment claims, double what they were in September of 2019 up until now. In- and, you know, our unemployment rate, sure, I mean, it's it's higher than it was, but it's down under 4% now. But still, unemployment claims are still double. And there are some nuances here, right, because we had the boost in this state until very recently, and that just went away. So we'll see what happens there. But SNAP participation, you know, what they used to call food stamps, right, yeah. uh, Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, growing even as the unemployment rate was dropping, Wisconsin participation, Robert, according to Angela Rashidi, um, Thirty percent up from June of 2019 to June of 2020, and and the funding levels are up considerably as well. I, I don't want to get into yeah, all no, the no, minutiae of the growth in these programs. In the
1: response to the pandemic, um, yeah. and, in, and because the Democrats won the White House and they won the Senate and they had the House, um, the, the enormous there's been a tremendous increase in government uh, benefit programs, government benefits flowing into the states. And a tremendous increase in enrollment. Now, some of the enrollment is due to people losing their jobs because yes. of the virus. But, but, the, but the Democrats, really, what they'd rather have is people on benefits from the federal government than people working. And, and that's what's sad about this. And, and again, we, we, um, you know the, the, the way public assistance should be used in the United States is when people face a difficult circumstance, they go in and they get assistance, and then they get assistance in helping them get back on their feet and into work. And if their earnings aren't quite enough to support their families sufficiently, we can support those earnings with supplemental assistance, including food stamp benefits or refundable tax credits, targeted at people really struggling with with children in their household. And then as earnings rise, their need for benefits goes away. That is the way in which these programs are best run. Unfortunately, Democrats want everybody on assistance all the time, it seems like. And regardless of work, and they certainly don't want people being told that in order to receive assistance, they have to make some effort. And to me, while that sounds harsh or difficult, it's actually better for the people we're trying to help. Yeah, every, and I wanna, every person and I knows get- that.
0: Yes. And I want to get to that work thing, because that's 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 the essential issue here, that connection. But you've raised two other issues I want to ask you about directly. What sure. you're saying, I think, is that, hey, I mean, we, we have a we've had a serious pandemic. I mean, the coronavirus is a serious issue in this country. No question. And I don't. we don't want to minimize that. No. Nope. But what I think I might hear you saying is that there are some people in America we are using the pandemic as an excuse to push longstanding progressive policy and goals that don't really have very much to do with health and safety or or the economy.
1: Yes, I, I, I've said this a lot and, and I'm not sure that everyone's really paying much attention, so I appreciate the fact that you are. The fact is, is that what we did during the COVID crisis, which was unusual, totally out of the blue, unusual circumstances, we addressed it with an emergency response. But as that emergency goes away, as we go back to work, as people get vaccinated and their exposure to potential uh, very serious health issues is diminished and hospitals stabilize, and we go back to where we were, we shouldn't keep going with emergency policies that were intended to address an emergency. But that's not how the Democrats see it. They see it as this emergency gave them an opportunity to not just respond to the emergency, but to transform the safety net into something different that didn't have an emphasis on employment.
2: Folks, I'm interrupting real quick just to go ahead and remind you that productions like this are only able to exist because of your support from people just like you from throughout the state of Wisconsin and throughout the nation. And if you're getting value from this program, what we're hoping is maybe you'll want to go ahead and give some value back, really exercise that free enterprise system that we truly believe in to spread this message throughout the world, really because that's the amazing thing about the internet, but how can you do so? Today, I've gone ahead and brought in my friend and colleague, our Director of Development here at the Badger Institute, Angela Smith. Angela, for people that want to go ahead and take that next step, maybe they're a first-time donor, maybe they want to go ahead and just learn more about how they can support us as an organization, how could they do so?
3: Absolutely. Thanks for uh, asking. Real quick, um, the Badger Institute has been around for three decades. We are a driving force really to protect individual liberties in Wisconsin, ensuring opportunity and prosperity for all Wisconsinites. And we are grateful for donations of any support um, in any amount. Um, Truly, your support really does make a difference at any level. There's a couple of ways you can donate. You can go ahead and go on our website, which is badgerinstitute.org. There's a Donate button right on the front homepage. there. Click Donate, and it gives you a couple of different options. You can pay securely online. Um, another option is you can send us a check. Our mailing address is right there on the website, and um, you can send a check here to the office. We would be very grateful for any donation. Again, really does help um, protect individual liberties, limited government in our state, and our goal is to make Wisconsin the freest and most prosperous state in the nation, we can really only do that with your help.
2: Absolutely. And and the message of these ideas, the message of liberty, is a universal language that hopefully you can be a part of in spreading to those that want to discover more. So that's all I've got. Let's go ahead and get right back to the show. And
1: that's sad. That's really sad. And yet, because there's an emergency and there's all sorts of, uh, you know, other political issues going around, they're getting away with it. I mean, the checks that I've described that are coming from IRS, the unemployment benefits that Angela's described, the SNAP benefit increases that you described, that Angela chronicles, all of that is in place now. They've put them in place. This bill that they're discussing in Washington now, they want to make these things permanent. And that's where the real battle is. And it's going to be a close call because they they have the votes in the house they say and they they think they have they're going to get the votes in the senate and they have the presidency
3: yeah so yeah we
1: may yeah. we may in the sort of after effect of a covid crisis that was an emergency make fundamental changes to our safety net program that i think will do long lasting damage but we but it happened because we were we were distracted by the emergency
0: well in terms of snap i mean they call it an emergency allotment don't they is that the proper term
1: well, there is emergency SNAP benefits, but no, they increased the benefits. By the way, they did that by the president, and they didn't even have to ask Congress. Angela Rashidi, your fellow and my fellow and my great friend, she's one of the only people that pointed out that what President Biden did, most other every other president would have required a congressional act, but he just unilaterally increased the SNAP benefits. Now, food stamp benefits are politically, uh, he gets away with that, you should know, because it's all federal money. And if you have, if lots of families have more money on their SNAP card, they can buy more food at grocery stores and they can help more local business people uh, with their consumption. Uh, but it's not it's not necessarily the right thing to do or really targeted people really in need.
0: Yeah, let me go back to the federalism issue because we have this great increase at the state level, right? And some these are federally funded programs and but they're administered by the state. And in some instances, if we switch over and we talk about Medicaid, for instance, I mean, that's supposed to be a state program. But it's really now in many states almost entirely federally funded. So I just use that as an example. But one of the reasons we're believers in federalism, right, is because you don't have accountability unless the state has skin in the game. Absolutely. Well, and I so I just wonder if you that. could elaborate on that. I mean, how well, are we going to get think past, of yourself past this? As a,
1: if you're like I was a state or local worker or commissioner, or, or yeah. maybe even someone attached to the governor's office, and someone says, well, you know, it will give you this money, and you can have this program, and we, you don't even have to pay for it. You don't have to ask your taxpayers to pay for it. You just have to be the, the pass-through, and you have to let it happen. It's just so tempting for people in that circumstance to just say, well, fine, we, we wouldn't do it this way if we were in charge. We wouldn't do it this way if we were paying part of the bill, but if it's all federal money, what does it matter? And that is very uh, uh, destructive to the appropriate state-local, state-federal relationship. I should point out that you know when I worked for uh, Mayor Bloomberg, even in New York, he used to say emphatically to me, "Do not ever say that. Say, say that just because it's, if it's federal money, it's okay. It's all taxpayers' money. All that money is all of our money, and we should run the program consistent with, with the right thing to do, regardless of who's paying the bill." But it's very tempting in a lot of states for instance on this new IRS welfare bill they're not making a lot of fuss about it because well what does it matter it's not our money but it really is because a, a federal taxpayer is also a resident of the state of Wisconsin
0: well sure it is and you know there's so much pressure on on the state politicians to just grow these programs I mean, you see it in the mainstream media. Hey, how come we just aren't accepting all this federal money in Wisconsin for things like Medicaid? Well, how do we turn the tide, Robert? I mean, how do we reestablish the fundamental principles of federalism so that the states have a stake in things so that we can try to have some accountability of these federally funded programs, which those, those are our tax dollars. I how agree. do we, so how do that, we reverse why, that?
1: And I, you know, when you brought up President Bill Clinton, that's what the cash block grant was. That's yeah. what it was. It was here's money, you're not getting any more. If you run the program well, and you get more people into work and less people receiving assistance, you can keep the, the remainder with the, the surplus dollars. We're not going to give you more money the more people you sign up. You're, you've got a block grant. And that was very successful. I would say the, TANF, the implementation of the TANF block grant and the work, program, work requirements is one of the most successful social policy changes in the last 25 years, far more successful than whatever's happened in Medicaid. I mean, Medicaid, which has a totally different approach, I don't think health outcomes are much better. We have got more enrollment. But I'm not so sure that we're really making people healthier, and uh, so and we don't have efficiency. I mean, the dollars are in, in the healthcare world are just not, uh, in my opinion, um, uh, properly uh, spent all the time. There's a lot of waste and abuse. So there is a way to do it, and it involves sharing the responsibility and rewarding states that help people get into employment, and um, and that's worked. Uh, but it's not being tried uh, lately because the current prevailing winds in Washington go against that.
0: Yeah, boy! If AEI um, could continue to do the great work and trying to, um, you know, again reestablish, you know, some accountability and some, you know, in in these programs so that the states have a stake. Well, we're going um, to
1: find out how influential. We're trying very hard. We have four scholars here who fight on this yeah. every day. Um, you know, there's. We're, we are, it's an uphill battle because the Democrats have the House and the Senate, but um, th- these, the final decision on the major $3.5 trillion social safety net transformation legislation is not in yet. The Democrats are having some trouble. They're discovering that they may not have the votes. I was on the phone with some members of Congress yesterday who were sort of moderate Democrats and they're concerned. They're very good. This doesn't seem right. And they were actually very concerned about the extent to which child tax credit benefits go to people very high up the income scale, as well as being concerned that the, that uh, the new policies were undermining the focus on employment.
0: Yeah. Well, um, I know you probably have to go talk to members of Congress, and I don't have you all morning, but can we just kind of wrap this up by talking about the issue that both of us have been coming back to, which is this very concerning disconnect between new entitlements and growth of programs and the lack of work. I mean, what's what's wrong with it? You know, I mean, you know what's 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 wrong with just helping people out and you know giving them a check when they need it, Robert? Without without well, uh, you know sort of, sort of like the, univ- sort of like universal you know basic income. What's well, wrong with that?
1: Well, to me, the one of the benefits of being employed is that you earn your own success and you have the 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 benefit of knowing that you are part of your uh, well being. Secondly, you set a better example for your children. You're a better community member, you're a better spouse. Uh, you're also getting out of, out of the home, you're getting out of your circle, you're exposing yourself to a community that is in the employment world. Now work is sometimes hard and difficult, but think of, uh, but, but non-working leads to not only bad health, it used to more, greater substance abuse, mental health issues, you're just not as healthy, you're just not likely to be a flourishing individual if you're completely outside of the the employment world. Um, And there's a lot of evidence on that. Angela's written a lot on this. And so my view is that employment benefits families and children um, outside of just the income. And so there is a lot wrong with it. Again, if you go into Raj Chetty at Harvard has done an amazing report where he shows communities that are strong are communities where there are lots of people going to work. Communities that are very weak in all kinds of measures, school outcome for children, drug and substance abuse, crime, are communities where there's not a lot of work. And so work is just fundamental. And that's something I'll never back away from. I believe in strongly. I really do believe the rhetoric I just used is no longer um, really the rhetoric of the main part of the Democratic Party anymore, and certainly not of the progressives. And I think it's sad because Lyndon Johnson talked that way. John Kennedy talked that way. FDR talked that way. Bill Clinton talked that way. But they've changed. And in their change, I think they think they're helping people. But I actually think in the long run, they're going to create greater dysfunction, greater difficulties, greater poverty for people at the very bottom.
0: Yeah, you're really talking on a couple different levels there, Robert. I mean, number one. What you're talking about is, you know, the dignity of work, helping people flourish in life. I mean, work is really essential to that, to having a purpose and, and dignity and really flourishing. I mean, and it's not just an opinion. I mean, there's, there's, there's data on it There's a lot that. of evidence
1: on it. And, you know, there's sometimes evidence. people say, well, you're forcing somebody into a 45-hour work week. with bar- a, a little bit of work expectation in these programs, it doesn't mean people work part-time. What they're doing is giving money to people who work none, zero none and i think that means that they're just giving up on helping those individuals flourish as humans in their community and just saying here if i send you a check i'll feel better i don't really care about what happens to you but at least i've given you money and, yeah, that's and then. A terrible yes, attitude. yeah thank that's you the easiest thing to yes, do too
0: thank you and and so and you're also talking about aspiration i think right like that's part of that's part of what it means to be happy as an, as a, as, a, as, a, as a human being right to aspire i mean we believe in aspiration and so, and so you talk about, bring, as I bring it up, as you talk about Raj Chetty and what he's really talking about is how are people mobile? How do you get on the ladder? How do people move up? Yes. You know, and, and you so, don't
1: move up unless you're in catch the work. I mean, you have to work, you have to develop a, a habit or practice of being in employment. That's what future employers look for. And you just, you're not gonna get up uh, and be, and you're right, economic mobility, upward mobility is the real challenge. We wanna help people who start at the bottom, be able to find the resources and opportunities to move up safely in the middle class or higher. And if someone thinks you can do that and not be in the labor force, they're just wrong. It takes, you have to work in order to move up.
0: Yeah, thank you. I mean, isn't that why this disconnect is just is so insidious and detrimental? I mean, what you're really talking about is how do we make the American dream, right, real to people? I mean, how do they aspire to something more? How do they grow and move up the ladder? And you can't do that without being on the ladder with work. Is that a fair I way completely
1: to put agree. it? But Mayor Bloomberg used to say, uh, any job is better than no job. And yeah. we had gotten away from in running our programs in New York City from this sort of dead-end jobs, bad jobs. There are people, and by the way, people from all over the world come to the United States because they want to work. And so, uh, you know, that that spirit, that desire for the opportunity of employment is what drives people to um, uh, succeed. And if we diminish that, if we disparage that, if we reward people without, uh, and say, provide them benefits, which makes the incentive to work go away, we're going to be doing harm, not just to them, which is definitely true, but to our society.
0: Yeah. Well, maybe we can talk about immigration, which I thought you were going to kind of start going in that direction another day because we don't have time. But, But what I would like to ask you, though, is, you know, you know, you also have an issue here, though, where, you know, What's happening with our labor force, or our workforce participation, we don't have enough workers in America. Yeah, so yeah, that, that's there's an issue, of, there's an issue then, of individual dignity and there's an issue of mobility, but there are some broader economic issues here too, right? Like absolutely, we need a labor that, that, force.
1: Yeah, that's just absolutely true. You can't go anywhere in the United States right now and not run into an employer who can't find workers. And part of the reason he, they can't find workers is because the government is paying them not to work. And yeah. We just have to get out of that. I think we're going to, as these unemployment benefits expire um, and some of these emergency provisions that were in the original COVID legislation expire, um, uh, I think we're gonna get back to that, but, it's, but it's, it's close and these child tax credits do have an impact on keeping some people out of the labor force. Now, another thing that's happening Mike, that we aren't going to talk about today is that people are also retiring earlier. Okay, and and, and that's diminishing the workforce, and that's sad too. Because I would, I want, you know, people, you know, my dad. We're we're going to talk about my dad or my family a little bit. My dad worked until he was ninety, and work was a part of his life all of his life. And um, I think we, you know, that's another issue. If we're losing all these wonderful workers because they're stepping out of the labor force and retiring, that will be a challenge for our economy.
0: Well, I think if people um, and I I want to hear more about your dad, I've heard you talk about your dad, you know, your dad, uh, you know, civil rights leader in the Kennedy administration, Eisenhower administration, too. Yeah, let me just
1: make sure we're clear on that. Dad was a small town lawyer in New Richmond, Wisconsin. His father had started, had been part of a law firm up there that where Warren Knowles was a partner. Yes. And um, he was perfectly happy, but he got an opportunity to go to Washington in 1960 to work for President Eisenhower's civil rights division. And he was a lawyer who traveled the parts of Wisconsin, the Northwest corner and the central Wisconsin. He was very comfortable in rural courthouses and among rural people. And when he got to Washington, he found out that the real civil rights struggle was taking place often in the rural South. And he went South and he traveled in those courtrooms all across Mississippi and Alabama and Tennessee and Georgia. And he turned out to be quite good at bringing the the influence and power and and position of the federal government on voting rights and on school desegregation to the south in a way that was made him a hero to civil rights workers and Dr King but also someone that was respected by the leaders of the, the moderate leaders of the south and over time the kennedys came to town and they liked him and they kept him and then president johnson kept him and he worked in in all three of those administrations, Eisenhower, Kenny, and Johnson, but he was always the lawyer representing the federal government in the South on very key um, uh, matters. And, and uh, he was respected because he carried with him, and this is what I wanna say, Mike. He was respected because he carried with him the values of Northwest Wisconsin. And people in the South got to really like him. He was a straight shooter, he was honest, and he worked very, very hard. And um, uh, so, yeah, that was dad. And then it happened that dad, when he was growing up in New Richmond, his his he became very friendly with Johnny Blood. In fact, he was the water boy for the Pittsburgh Steelers when Johnny was the coach of the Steelers in 1940, when Byron Wizard White was the rookie of the year. And so we had a long relationship with this very dynamic hero of the football world. Um, dad was with Johnny when he was inducted into the hall of fame that Johnny blood was in the inaugural hall of fame class, um, along with Bronco Nagurski and George Halas. So Johnny was a real star I mean, he was a great player as halfback quarterback for the Packers in the twenties and the early thirties. And, but he also was this, um, unusual character. He was, a he'd been, I think he got thrown out of Notre Dame. He went to St. John's, you know, the school up in up North in Minnesota. Yeah. Collegeville. Yeah. He was kind of a literary guy. And so he could go into bar rooms. And, uh, when he got going, he would start quoting long passages of Shakespeare. (laughs) And that was very popular, uh, up there I gather. And, but on top of that, you know, he taught me how to throw a forward pass. I mean, uh,
0: wait, wait a second. I never, I never heard some of this before. Did you say that he coached Wizard White, the Supreme, yes. oh, yeah. who later, yeah, yeah. later, who I knew was a football player, but yeah. played, did you say played in Pittsburgh? But, yeah. but later, later became a, 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 a Supreme, Supreme Court justice. justice. Yes.
1: And I'm yeah. going to talk about guy. that when I come out there. They oh. had a you know, long 50-year relationship. Uh, Johnny was, the at the end of his career, the Roonies, which is another you know, Irish Catholic family in America who owned the Steelers, hired Johnny to be sure. the player coach. And then the 1939, I think Wizard White won the Heisman Trophy for the University of Colorado and the Steelers drafted him. And he was kind of like one of the original high paid rookie football players. He might have paid $10,000 or something. And Johnny was the coach. The Rooney's were the owner and Byron was the star player. And then after that, Byron went off to be a Rhodes Scholar and he went to Yale Law School and then he became friends with the Kennedys and worked for them in the Far West during the 1960 campaign. And when Byron um, came back to Washington as the deputy attorney general working for Robert Kennedy, and when dad met Byron, then it turned out they, they knew each other because dad had been the water boy on the Steelers. And dad was very close to his cousin, Johnny Bud, and um, they, they reacquainted them. And I have a, wow. one of the last things about the relation between Johnny and um, Justice White was that in, I think 1976, uh, the Democrats were having a hard time finding a candidate for president, and Johnny decided that he was gonna be the one-man campaign manager for the campaign to draft Byron White to run for president. No kidding. And uh, his slogan was, the dark horse is white. And (laughs) (laughs) that's awesome. (laughs) And uh, Justice White did not take him (laughs) up on that and did not leave the court. Uh, but um, they remain very, very loyal and dear friends. And I'm going to show some of that uh, when I come out to the Badger Institute. Um,
0: I I love that, Robert. We've got two other subjects now, which I want to learn more about, which is, um, you know, all this football, the football stuff, you know, <laughs> and, and we'll talk about the Supreme Court and the evolution of the Supreme Court maybe another day as well. Well, and
1: Justice White but, was an you know, important justice. He dissented in Roe v. Wade, wrote, you know, a dissent yes. that is going to be very relevant in the next six months as the court takes up Roe v. Wade. That's a very controversial issue. But Justice White was a, a great justice and um, not as much as well appreciated as he should be, but he was a great American.
0: Let me wrap this up with one final thing. Thank you so much. Can we just go back and touch on some of the things we talked about before? You know, are we are we at a crossroads? You know, you hear that time and time again. You know, you, you get you get a little, I guess, a little bit older. You know, and for yeah. that, so every time, every time, you know, before a, a presidential election, every four years, old, we're at a crossroads in America. But are we? Is there something different about this moment? I mean, the things that you're talking about, we're talking about reverting back to. You, you you mentioned Lyndon Johnson. I mean, we're talking about reverting back to that point in time where the great society, you know, programs were implemented. And you're, you're talking about all of a sudden, we didn't really get into this, but there's this real push in America for universal basic income. And it's not just at the federal level, you know, as you know, Robert, I mean, it's at the municipal level. And yeah. so there's really, and and that's, the, those aren't just programs. I mean, that's the difference between free enterprise, which we believe in and AEI believes in. and And really, and I don't think it's too dramatic but 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 really, socialism. Correct me yeah, if I'm, I, I if I'm if
2: we wrong.
0: Are we at a crossroads here? And, and, and I think and, this and is a for just crucial, a second.
1: Yeah, I think it, we are at a very crucial time. I think that uh, for a variety of reasons, too many Americans have been sold that that um, you know that they're really first a ward of the state more than they are an individual, more than they are a member of a family or a community. They're a ward of the state and. And every day they wake up and they think, "What does the state owe me?" And my situation is entirely dependent on what the state does for me. And I think that's not consistent with the long-standing American tradition and long-standing American beliefs in independence and the individual. But it has begun to grow and permeate into the way people think. And um, I think this trillion-dollar spending deluge the Democrats want to put over is a sign of the strength of that. And, and to me, once it gets, uh, and of course their theory is that if you get people hooked onto a government support from cradle to grave, they'll never, they'll never give it up. And I, I do worry about that. I worry a lot about that. And um, if we wanna keep the country that we've had, that did believe in the individual, did believe in, in independence, did believe in states, and did believe in communities and families, Um, We're going to have to push back on that because it is just true that as the federal government takes over, it crowds out those other institutions in American life, family, church, community, um, employers that are often, I think, much more effective at helping people lead flourishing lives.
0: Well, thank you so much for giving us some of your time this morning and helping us frame what I really think is a crucial juncture in this country. And thank you so much for in advance, I guess, for coming and joining us on October 19th. Anybody that's listening to this uh, October 19th at, at the Wisconsin Club, the Badger Institute Annual Dinner, Robert Doris speaking. I'm so looking forward to hearing more about all of these issues and and wizard white and, and, your say, dad and johnny blood mcnally and yeah. and i have to say for for folks i i this is just a podcast it's not on video but i have a can of johnny blood red irish style red ale right in my hand right here and we're going to have some of that available that night as well
1: thank you very much i really appreciate being on the podcast and i look forward to
2: seeing you in wisconsin in october
0: thank you so much robert
2: you once again for listening to this episode and please, if you want to go ahead and spread this message of free dialogue, open discourse, new ideas, topics that do matter to each and every one of us, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, wherever you're listening to this show right now. Each and every review and rating matters. As always, I'm Remso W. Martinez from the Badger Institute, signing off.
3: Free Exchange is a Badger Institute production, copyright 2021.